to the Brexit Breakdown, the podcast from the UK in a changing Europe that discusses all things Brexit and more. Every couple of weeks, we'll dig deep into our guest's area of speciality, explaining the key issues and hopefully making it clear to you that expertise is actually quite a useful thing to have around. If you enjoy what you hear, please do rate us and write a review of us, as I'm assured by people young enough to understand the interweb that that would be really, really helpful. Well, it's my real pleasure to welcome today Professor Jane Green from Nuffield College at the University of Oxford. Jane is Professor of Political Science and British Politics. Above and beyond that, she's Director of the Nuffield Politics Research Centre and something we'll talk about in a bit, which is the Westminster Bridge Initiative. She's also, and we'll talk about this in some, in some detail, I think, the co-director of the British Election Study. And by way of a plug, their most recent book, Electoral Shocks, is absolutely fascinating and looks into the last, uh, well, not the last couple of elections, actually, we have them all the time now, don't we? The elections of 2015 and 2017 and actually make sense of them. So, Jane, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a real pleasure. This must be the best time ever to be someone who studies British elections, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, if you think about kind of British political history, you think of them huge turning points around the turn of the last century. Think of the interwar period. You know, what distinguishes this period now is that we have tons of data, you know, to understand the dramatic shifts in the electorate and what's happening politically and, you know, how that impacts on the British public. So it, it is an extraordinary time to be studying British elections. And it's, it was an extraordinary time to take over the British election study. Of course, none of us foresaw when we took it on in 2013, 2014, just the remarkable period that was about to come. And, and of course, there's, there's data and there's data, isn't there? And, you know, when I talk to sophologist friends, they'll quite often say that the British election study is the gold standard of electoral data. Now, I suppose two questions from that. One, is it true? And two, if so, why? So I think there's a couple of things going on there. One is the methodology that the British Election Study uses for part of its work. So the British Election Study is now a very large project. Part of that project is that after every election, we take a random sample of the British population. And that differs from the majority, if not all, of the British polling industry, which isn't able to do that. It's a very expensive, very intensive and expensive exercise. But it's extremely important because what that means is you really get a reliable snapshot of the country at large. And then that snapshot is what is used by opinion pollsters to then benchmark their own data to ensure that it's representative as far as possible with weights and so on and different methods in order to mirror as far as possible the data that we collected with the British election study. So I think that's part of it. It's a methodology point and we've been very committed to continuing that and that's you know the hallmark of the British election study that has run since 1964 having that post-election probability-based sample, so that random representative sample of the British population over time. So it's, you know, that long-running quality is part of that. And then I think also um, what we have is a very large 
panel study. And so we interview 30,000 people online and we follow up large numbers of those people between each time we do surveys, so which wave of the panel study. We're on our 20th wave now. And I think because that data is really rich and really detailed and we're able to look at within-person change, I'm not sure. I think the gold standard applies to the random probability sample and the quality of that data. But the data you get from the British Election Study panel is just really different. It's of a much more kind of ambitious, deeper exercise than is available in opinion polls, which, you know, which also mm. are hugely important and useful. I think w- w- one of the questions sort of lay people ask about this is if we have all these numbers, if we have so much data, why do we sometimes get things so wrong? I don't know if you think that's fair. No, I think that's that's a really good question. And I think when people, certainly in 2015, um, the opinion pollsters weren't predicting the Conservative majority that then happened Mm. under David Cameron. And so a lot of questions were then asked about the industry and about the amount of data. But of course, what matters is not how much data you have. Um, What matters is how, what the quality of that data is. And so, you know, it really is one of these kinds of areas where bigger isn't always better. Mm. And I think the kind of preoccupation with big data, you know, collecting we've got all this access to all of this data on, online, um, web scraping, or social media data and so on. But what is absolutely crucial is you have to be able to understand that data and you have to be able to verify its quality. And the British election study after 2015 was a really big part of addressing those issues and enabling the whole industry to learn lessons in, in order to improve. And so, you know, I think that's part of it. And the other, the other response I would also give is I don't think the opinion pollsters, if you're thinking about polling, they're not getting it that wrong. It's a very difficult exercise and actually they're doing pretty well and in some cases extremely well. Now, in, in, in the book that I just plugged for you at the start. Uh, Thank you. You, you come up with this notion of electoral shocks, which I'm going to ask you to expand on in a minute. You, dis- you, you discuss five of these shocks, mm. immigration from Eastern Europe, the global financial crisis, coalition government, Scottish independence and the EU referendum. Simple starter for 10, I suppose, is what is an electoral shock and why do they matter? So one of the interesting things when you look at how we've understood elections is people have avoided kind of thinking about those big turning points, those big events, you know, the kind of, so we look at long term gradual change and sort of those kind of bottom-up changes in the electorate in society and and kind of more sociological explanations. And then people have said, well, leaders really matter, the economy really matters. But, you know, what about these massive moments that do so much? And why are they important? So, So what are the features of what we call an electoral shock? So this is a shock, you know, something that comes from outside. We weren't necessarily expecting it. It affects the electorate. Um, So very simply... But these are those events or changes that everybody notices. Nobody could be avoiding the fact that we are currently in the pandemic, in this health crisis, in this um, upcoming economic crisis. These aren't the kind of everyday of politics which many people tune out of. So they're very, very noticeable. They're large changes and they are also changes that are very politicised. So for them to affect voting behaviour and people's attitudes, there has to be political competition around them. And so what we identified is a way of assessing these major shocks, these major moments that have very substantial consequences or can have very substantial consequences 
depending on how, you know, political actors fight over them, compete over them and so on. Um, and so we have kind of different mechanisms through which they work. So they might work by changing people's judgments about the competence of parties. So if you think about what's happening at the current time with the coronavirus handling, you know, huge questions being asked about the competence, the handling, the delivery, the capability of government. So that could be a competence shock. Also, what they do is they change what matters. So they change, you know, people's focus on immigration or on Brexit or on Scottish independence. They make those issues really key. And they can also change how we see political parties in other ways. So like the images of political parties. And, you know, these are really important changes to understand. And you know, they're having very dramatic consequences on the electorate and on what predicts how people vote. And of course, then parties respond to that. So very, very important to understand both from a kind of understand the British population and, and voters, but also the consequences for politics. In the book, it's, it's interesting that you have sort of sort of long-term shifts in the nature of the electorate. You talk about things like fragmentation and volatility, which we'll come back to. But I mean, our, our bread and butter for the last few years has been Brexit. So I'm going to have to ask you about Brexit a little bit, I'm afraid. And just, you know, for some people, Brexit completely changed our politics in a way yeah. that it w- wouldn't have happened otherwise. And other people, I mean, people like Paula Surridge, for instance, see it more as an accelerator of trends that were underway already. What's, what's your take on that? And then if we sort of fast forward from the referendum to the election last year, which of course you don't cover in the book, was that essentially Brexit playing out at the polling booth? Was that a Brexit election? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot going on here. I mean, one of the reasons we argue that shocks are so important now, and they've always been important, but they're becoming more important, is because you've got a much more fluid electorate. So if you think about, you know, electorate that's kind of pretty willing to move about, you know, to mm. reassess to look at different political alternatives then if you go and kind of disturb that you know have a major disturbance into that very fluid picture you're going to see more people reacting and responding and so that's kind of one important change is this fluidity in the electorate what we call volatility the the willingness to shift around to change your vote choice over time that is a long-term trend that's that's now being impacted by these um, shocks I think if we think about the, the, the question of Brexit itself, so what was going on there? Yes, it's true that what we refer to as kind of second dimension politics. So if you think first dimension politics as being economics, you know, traditional left-right, that's how we understood the world, that's how we saw political choices. When I was growing up all those years ago, you know, that was what politics was. It was a kind of battle of left and right, and that's how you made sense of it all. But I think that increasing importance of these other issues, these issues which, you know, may be about nationalism, maybe about immigration, maybe about people's values, whether they want a more traditional way of life or more progressive way of life or liberal way. That has been shifting gradually. And I think one of the reasons for that was that surge in immigration, the concern about immigration that came about in the early 2000s or mid 2000s. And so, you know, part of that is, is, is a gradual shift, but it's also explained by these kind of big dynamic moments in politics. Now, what you have with Brexit, of course, is the politicization of that dimension. So when people had those differences, they were, they were kind of 
they were there. They've always been there, frankly. I mean, the parties have always had these kind of cross-cutting issues where they don't quite sit neatly into the left-right dimensions. The party's mm. a little bit kind of antagonistic in those issues. But nevertheless, you know, you could settle on being a conservative or on being on Labour and still have those liberal or more, or more traditional views. What's happened with Brexit is it's just made it the most important thing politically and also to the electorate for many, many, many people. And so you've essentially politicised that thing on which most people disagreed within the existing political parties and put it centre stage. And then the parties are competing over that. That's all we've talked about. That's all you've talked about, yeah. <laughs> obviously. You know, this huge service that you've, you've provided. You know, this the salience, the significance, the moment of Brexit has really come to almost dominate everything, or at least it's appeared to dominate everything. I think we can overblow it a little bit, but it has been ex- extremely important. And then, of course, you've had these two elections in 2017 and 2019, which have been about that. Really, the parties have said, this is what this election is about. And certainly in 2019, it was like, we need this majority was also true in 2017 but I think even more so in 2019 with Boris Johnson much more clearly on the leave side really sharpening that divide and sharpening that choice and so so yes you know you have those two elections where that issue has been made center stage the political parties have provided presented this choice based on this other dimension that's you know that's kind of a different axis of politics and as a result of that the things that predicted people's attitudes to that Mm more important for how they voted in those two elections well i really want to it might be an unfair question is whether this will continue into the future but i mean let me let me let me circle back a bit i mean first thing is we've seen these remarkable shifts and a remarkable pace about politics Mm. uh, certainly since 2015 arguably since 2010 do you think we might return to a slower pace now that we have a, a relatively stable single party majority arguably for the first time since the start of the last decade or do you think actually this volatility might continue well I mean, it it was certainly possible. So if you'd asked me that question in December, at the end of December, when we were all finally putting our feet up and reflecting <laughs> on the election, you know, when Boris Johnson won his 80-seat majority, I think we might have said, well, this could stabilise for a bit. So what you have then is, you know, this question effectively settled as far as election is concerned, um, a majority in Parliament, so more clarity, and then it's a question of you know, how, how Brexit actually looks. So I think, you know, there was a sense that there was lots of potential turmoil and difficulties and negotiations to come, but it was certainly plausible that politically things would stabilise. Now, of course, that was a very, very short-lived feeling. <laughs> and you know, Boris Johnson was kind of starting to kind of look at his long-term legacy. Then, he, of course, it's been disrupted again. And the coronavirus pandemic, the crisis has, again, potential to destabilise an awful lot. I mean, for one, it's not about Brexit. So, you know, the economic crisis, which we see coming, is, is primarily a domestic crisis. And I think what's kind of been interesting to watch is that it has been a question of competence. It has been a question of blame, but there's also a little bit of a period where there's been a kind of, right, well, we're at this, this stage, we need to rally behind the government, or at least we need to support and be constructive behind the government. But I can see a very substantial amount of real accountability coming 
or at least, you know, I expect that, I expect there to be political competition about blame and about responsibility and how this could have been better or worse. And, and of course, so many unknowns about what's coming economically and how the country will respond. So it doesn't look like we're going to a period of stability. And it comes back to your question, you know, your question you wanted to ask but didn't ask, which is, will it continue? And I think it continues if that second dimension, that second axis is the thing that politicians compete over and people still see the world through that Brexit lens, or it doesn't continue because that alters. But of course, we also have Brexit. We also have the actual process and terms on which Britain leaves the EU still yet to be to, to unfold. So both of those things are going to be happening at the same time. So, you know, I'd be an idiot really to, to make firm predictions on the basis of these two hugely, you know, very moving, very substantial shocks, which we're still in the middle of. But would you say, maybe it's too early to say that, I mean, COVID is an electoral shock like no other in terms of its scale, its scope, the degree to which it's pushed everything else out of the headlines, it has dominated everything. Is this a different order of electoral shock, do you think, to the others, which were pretty damn significant themselves? I know, we, we called, yeah, I used to, th- I thought Brexit was that, really. You know, I thought that was the shock to end all shocks. You know, this was the real big one. Um, this was the one that was going to have the real long-term consequences. I mean, one of the things we noticed in the book, we looked at the financial crisis, you know, mm. these they don't just disappear you know the effects of these major shocks especially when they're felt very very personally you know loads of people affected by by that the the financial crisis they don't disappear they hang around in people's memories people still feel cross and angry and you know yes there might be an election in the intervening period but that can still go on because parties are still competing around it so that's you know these were shocks that seemed really important now i thought it was really interesting with the dominic Cummings response of the public to to his behavior and the way that the government handled that and you know when I was asked about it at the time the question was kind of what is that does this really matter and I I thought well yes it really does because this is really personal I think this shock is very personal I mean it's so obvious to say it but it, it cuts very very deep for us it's not something we're observing experiencing you know when there was a coalition government and the Tories were in government with the Liberal Democrats that really changed how people saw politics but you know it's not the same as having a loved one who's been ill or worse or fearing for your livelihood and your paying your mortgage and your kids education and so on and so on and so on and I think so I think this really has the potential to to run extremely deep and to be extremely important but how that works out then depends on you know what the what the politics of it of it is going forward how the parties compete around it and you know who gets the blame and how's that how that works that process and um you know with the economic shock coming we just have to wait and see but but i think it's huge i mean you've mentioned the word competence a lot and i i should have mentioned at the start that you've also written the definitive book on that along with uh, will jennings that i also recommend very strongly to our leaders but it, is it fair to say it's always struck me i've never sort of managed to sort of express this very well that if politics is, is is if political competition is on the second dimension competence is somehow harder to measure because with brexit for instance you want to get it done but actually the impacts and even if they're quite severe are quite removed from us but does covid suddenly put competence back front and center because as you say this is the health of our loved ones this is my job this is my kids education this is about whether i can have a summer holiday does that really ram home this issue of having a government that is competent and makes the population worry about things like does this quarantine make sense yeah i think it's a there's a there's a question there of what is the government doing about it in terms of what money has been spent is the government providing the resources is it bailing out the institutions you know if i work in the arts and i you know quite happy about the investment 
in the arts that took, that was announced yesterday. Those those kinds of is the government giving me or is spending money in the right direction? They're those questions. But I think there's a much more fundamental question: which does this government look like it's got its act together? You know, does it look like a government? That is capable and managing things well and do I fundamentally trust this government I might not have voted for them but do I basically think that they're doing an okay job or likely to be able to manage and I think that is crucial so that never goes away I think it's always important and then when that starts to unravel and there have been real moments where I've thought this is this is almost unrecoverable. And then, of course, you know, major spending announcements come in. But, you know, there are real questions being asked now about this government's handling capability, the strength of the institutions, the capability of government to really deliver. And of course, you've got these inflated promises that presumably are made because they believe that people kind of care, you know, that look, we're in control, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. But then, of course, not reaching, not meeting those promises is, is very, very damaging. So, so I think there's this really important dimension of politics, which is trust. Of mm. the, not just trust in politics, but fundamentally, do I think that they are capable of running um, the government? And, and it's, you know, this multifaceted, as, as we argue in the book, this is the book on competence with Will Jennings, it's multifaceted. It's about parties' trust on different issues. It's about whether or not those are the parties, you know, that we historically associate with being more committed to issues. But fundamentally, it's also, do I think that they are, you know, do I trust them? Are they doing well enough? And that's always been important. I think Brexit's really forced us to take our eye off that. But for me, it was always a question, Brexit was always a question of, okay, fine, you know, you're either on one side, leave or remain. But what is ultimately going to matter is, does it work? Is it successful? And obviously, you know, success is in the eye of the beholder a little up to a certain degree. But then there's another part of that, which is just, has this been a shambles? You know, has this been a success? Has the country come out of it stronger, better, economically more dynamic and diverse? And, you know, are the prospects better? Or or has this not worked at all? And has that been a failure of the negotiation process? How, you know, the decisions that we made and so on. So I've always seen Brexit as ultimately a question of competence. It's just that it's yet to, we're yet to see the outcome of, of that process. Now, I mean, we, we, we had examples over the last sort of 20, 30 years of governments losing a reputation for competence. You have Black Wednesday with the major government. You have the financial crisis, which you write about in the book. And it, it, as you said, it's really interesting the way that that didn't just affect the electorate in 2010, but it continued to affect the electorate in 2015. Does that feel like one of those kind of moments or is it too soon to sell? I think it does feel like one of those moments. It really does feel like one of those moments. But it's a question now of how that plays out. So what happens to the economy? How do the political parties compete? You know, what is the, you know, when there's an inquiry into the government's handling of the pandemic, is there a second wave? Is it a result of mismanagement or is it a a result of something else, you know, that we attribute elsewhere? So I think the nature, the extent and the way it happens is yet to be seen. But I definitely think it's one of those, it's a huge moment politically and it definitely feels like it's has, you know, certainly on a on a par with previous competence shocks. But yes, but like I say, there's still a lot of it yet to run. Now, I mean, apart from writing all these books at a hideous pace that makes everyone else very jealous, you're also one of those academics that actually believes in explaining what your research says to a, a non-academic audience. And I know this is something that's quite close to your heart. And I want to talk about a couple of things. Firstly, you have this Westminster Bridge project that you're starting at Nuffield. Can you just explain to me what that's all about? Yeah, it's early days. So what I want to do, and this is the ambition 
of this project um, is to try to find a way to provide insight, not into what I'm researching or what you're researching, but insight into what the discipline or what the broader study on a certain question provides into topical issues and questions. So if you have, you know, something comes along and, you know, it's a major event or it's a major question about politics, I don't know, trying to think of an example, say it's election interference or a question about that. And, you know, the question then is, well, what do we know about that? What I feel is, is missing is the kind of the broader, deeper sense of what the discipline can show, including those areas of uncertainty and debate and where we need to delve better, delve into things more. And also, you know, what are the kind of, there are methods questions there, you know, there's questions about how we do things. But the social sciences, I was really struck when I started as graduate student, there loads of things that bothered me about politics, loads of things I was fascinated in. And it was just, you know, obviously me being me, it was a real joy to dig into these years and years and years of research findings. And you, you know, you really can crystallize that and get a good sense of, okay, these are the foundations of the discipline. This is what we think we kind of understand about this. Where do we need to push this for further research and further knowledge and I feel like academics with the impact agenda that we've all been kind of responding to which is this real you know very honorable requirement and, and at least encouragement to make our research more relevant and useful. I think that the difficulty there is that it's sort of a cacophony of voices and it's how, you know, what's the bigger picture? What is, what is yeah. this, you know, what do the social sciences or what does political science really have to say about that question? And so what I want to do is try to provide, find ways to do that, to synthesize, and then to communicate that in a way that people can get their hands on. Because of course, normal people can't get their hands on, you know, decades worth of research and won't have the inclination or the time very rightly in order to do that because we're all doing diff different things but how can we open that up how can we open up the knowledge base and and also this you know so it's about it's about providing a service but it's also about really showcasing um how much the social sciences have to offer so it's a new thing and um i'm hoping to, to hoping to grow that and um i'm i'm excited about it and i and i think it for me the need arises because the incentives have been to promote our own work and you know, to some degree ourselves. And I think, you know, this is about promoting the discipline more broadly. But I, I mean, as a profession, we haven't always been great at this, have we? It's been a bit cloistered. We, we probably, my sense has always been, we haven't bothered to go that last step, which is having done the research to actually explain it to audiences who might want yeah. to understand it outside of the academy. But it's so hard. I mean, because we're not skilled in that. We're skilled in, or at least we hope we're skilled in, you know, doing high quality research that is replicable and is valid and reliable and all the rest of it you know no one sat down and trained us find this you know over and over and over again and I've done tons and tons of things no nothing like you have but I've done you know my fair share and I'm still learning every single time I do that and you know I'm just all grateful really I mean I've done as you know elections for ITV and they they've really worked with me to help me understand how to communicate things and we mm. practice you know we practice a lot and and they'll say, right, slower or up more upbeat or try this or try that or just describe it. You don't have to go into loads of depth. You know, we're going to do this. As sh this is going to be short. This is going to be longer. And I think it's it's it really is a skill that you have to learn. You can't just assume you can do it. And therefore, there needs to be some partnership. There needs to be people that understand the research and people that need to that understand how to communicate it. And the best outputs happen when those two things coincide but yeah but it's it's not for everyone as well and i don't think every academic should do it but have you, have you enjoyed being itv's answer to john curtis 
<laughs> well, with Colin Rawlings. I mean, I wouldn't, yes. so I wouldn't, I wouldn't make too many grand claims on that front. But it, no, I, ha I have enjoyed it. And I think, I think what's been really good about it is that it's been, you know, it's been a real, I mean, everybody says these kinds of things and it's, it's like, it just sounds like a kind of, oh yeah, but it has been one of those things. It's just a real privilege. And I, and I think, you know, I feel proud of it and it's helped me and it's grown me and kind of, I guess it's just taught me a lot. And then I've been there in the middle of these incredible moments amazing has been amazing about that is you you just feel like you you get it you understand it very 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 early on because you put a lot of a lot of background and preparatory work into um into those nights and then of course you're analyzing what's happening in real time and so afterwards you you know you sort of feel like you've got a head start you understand it and obviously for someone who's curious mm. about those things that's that feels good. Well, I think you're fantastic at it, I should say. And maybe we should end on that note. Jane, it's been an absolute treat talking to you. It's been fascinating. Thank you so, so much for finding the time to do it. And that's all for this week. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. And as I said before, before you switch off, please rate us and leave a review. And see you in a couple of weeks.